The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. If I could title this maybe a little bit different from what we've been studying in church history up to this point, uh, you'll understand this a little bit later uh, in the evening and later on in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I would probably title this, What Went Wrong? And that's what I'm going to talk about uh, mostly in the next couple of weeks, next three weeks, four weeks probably, is what exactly went wrong with uh, doctrine in the church and doctrine among Baptists. And we'll get into that in just a few minutes. But our subject, once again, this evening is church history. And I do hope that you're not getting tired of the subject. Uh, when you've got 2,000 years to cover, it's going to take a while to do that. And I've honestly been trying not to take 2,000 years to cover it. Uh, but uh, we do have a lot of history to talk about. And the reason that we do is because of that promise that we have in Matthew 16:18, where Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And so we do have a, a long history, and the church has never given in to the, to the world, never given in to Satan. Uh, we are still holding to the truths that was delivered by Jesus and the apostles. And there are some Christians who wonder and they, they worry about, uh, what are we going to do as the government keeps taking away the freedoms that we have to preach the gospel of Christ? What, what's going to happen to us if the government decides not to let us worship God in the way that we want to or the way that we're used to as Americans? And... Um, I don't think that we really have to worry about that because we'll just do what the church has always done. We'll continue to preach the gospel and people will continue to be saved. Uh, we've never really worried about opposition from the government. As I told you last week, uh, we're, we're kind of in an uncommon period of church history not to have persecution. So we're not really worried about what the government will do. Uh, the psalmist said that God will laugh at the kingdoms of this world, that he will have them in derision. In the second psalm, he said, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 40, verse number 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And so I don't think that we really need to be too much afraid of making the government angry. Instead, there's someone else that we need to be afraid of making angry. And the psalmist mentions this in Psalm 2, verse 12. He says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Well, in our study, we have progressed from the time that Baptists came to this continent, and we do have a long history here, actually as long as the pilgrims. There were Baptists who came over on the Mayflower, so we were here with the first permanent settlement that there was in this country. And since that time, Baptists have grown to be the second largest of all groups that claim Christianity. Now, the Roman Catholics, of course claim to have the most adherents, and it's really hard for us to compete with their numbers. 
because if there's one person in a family that belongs to the Roman Catholic Church, they count all the family. They count all the bugs under the sink and everybody else that, uh, that they... Uh, and so we can't really get into a numbers battle with them. That's impossible for us to do. And neither should we try to do that because that's gotten a lot of Baptist people in trouble, a lot of Baptist churches in trouble and just trying to keep up with numbers. But it is true that the Baptists have, as Baptists we've grown as, uh, in leaps and bounds in this country. Uh, there are some senses that have been taken in the South where you have uh, at least one state that claims to have over 80% of the people of that state claim to belong to the Baptist church. That would be Mississippi. And then you have others in the South that are 60% and over that claim to be Baptist. Now, I, I really do think that, that many of those are Baptist in name only and uh, not really, probably not really born-again believers. But it, but it shows you how far that we've come in this country. There are many, many Baptists in this country. Now, the point that we've reached in our outline of church history is number seven on your listening sheet, and that is the history of American Baptist. And we've been through the, the pilgrims and the establishment of the first Baptist church in America. We've talked about the first great awakening and the effect that that had on Baptist churches. And that was a tremendous time of growth among Baptists. From 1740 to 1790, Baptists increased by 2,000% in this country. And then came the Second Great Awakening, and Baptists benefited from that as well, uh, especially churches in the frontier of America, as Baptists are spread all across the frontier of America. And in fact, when the seven, Second uh, Great Awakening was kind of fizzling out among other groups, uh, Baptist people were still benefiting from that and keeping the movement alive. And that revival lasted, the Second Great Awakening lasted until 1840. And during that time, there was a time called the, or a movement that came called the Restoration Movement. And that really wasn't so good for Baptists because that spawned the, the Campbellites who rejuvenated the old history of baptismal regeneration. That is, they went back to the work salvation and baptism of the Roman Catholic Church and they just, uh, they just adjusted it a little bit into a slightly different form. But whenever you talk about restoration as connected with the church, you know that something is up and that something is not going to be good. Restoration assumes that something is wrong, that something needs to be fixed, that something is gone, that something needs to be brought back. And when people think that they need to fix something that Christ never said needed to be fixed, then you know that man is about to add something in place of God. And the Restoration Movement also brought about the Mormons. They're also part of the Restoration Movement. Uh, they didn't really have much impact in the days uh, back in the 1800s, but at least they didn't have the kind of impact that the Campbellites did. The Mormons, as you know, were sort of forced out into the uninhabited areas of the West because they were considered to be total rank heretics. Well, that hasn't changed. They're still total rank heretics. It's just that now they're respectable heretics, it seems. And it's just a reminder to you, and you know it very well, that Mormons are not Christians. They deny the essential deity of Jesus Christ. They are non-Trinitarian. They deny the scriptures as the infallible, only infallible authority. They're completely messed up about baptism. They understand nothing at all about the church. They are unashamedly works-oriented for salvation. Uh, in just about every area that you can mention, maybe in every area, 
they pervert Christian doctrine. So restoration is a, is a bad term when it's connected with the church. Uh, you can restore an old house, you can restore an old car, you can restore old furniture, but you can't restore the Lord's church. Now, where I left off last time was how that the Second Great Awakening gave way to a period that is called revivalism. So that's going to be number eight in our outline, revivalism. And now we're going to start getting into what, what went wrong, what exactly went wrong. And this, this time of revivalism had a very great impact on Baptist theology as there was a shift away from important doctrinal positions. Now, whenever you start changing Baptist theology, historical Baptist theology, you know that's not a good thing. And the change didn't actually destroy the church, but what it's done, it has weakened the Baptist position about God in salvation. Now, although there is a claim that there was no change of belief on the sovereignty of God, the change in revivalism speaks for itself. All that you really need to do is to look at the before and after positions of evangelicals, and of course we're talking about Baptists in particular, and you find that there very definitely is a change as regards the, in regard to the, to the uh, doctrine of God's sovereignty. And Baptists today are still influenced by that revivalism of 150 years ago, and it hasn't been until the last 20 or 30 years that there's been a, a shift back and a strong movement in Baptist churches to get back to the old doctrinal positions. And the way back to the truth has been a real issue with many of the fundamental Baptist churches as they've seen people in their churches and pastors in their fellowships that have switched positions or are switching positions and are going back to what Baptists before believed. Now, I, I can adjust that statement just a little bit in saying this, that there are fundamental Baptists that have never left those old Baptist positions. In our churches back in Kentucky, I can name dozens of them that still hold on to the old Baptist confessions of faith. But in these other fundamental churches that have so long been influenced by revivalism, the changes of modern preachers like Jack Hiles and ones like him, uh, in those churches there has been a movement back to doctrinal standards. And I think that you would understand that when you know that the hyper-fundamental emphasis is very shallow. And people have become genuinely interested in a study of God's Word, and they want something more substantial than what has been given to a Baptist people in the past. And I'm not just blowing smoke on this issue either. There are people that are attending churches like the Berean Baptist Church, and they're doing that because they know that they need to get back to some doctrinal grounding. And they recognize that there is something missing, and so you find some of the fundamental Baptist churches recognize that, and what they've tried to do is to get back to expository preaching. And it's no secret that fundamental Baptist churches are not known for expository preaching. Um, in fact, one of the guidelines that Jack Hiles left, of course, Jack Hiles is dead now, but before he died, he left some guidelines for his church in choosing a new pastor when he was gone. That's the First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana. And one of the things that he said was the guideline was that the pastor of the church could not be an expository preacher. Well, people have recognized that that's definitely the wrong position. 
And Jack Hiles Church at one time was practically known as the flagship of fundamentalism. I mean, Jack Hiles is the one who declared that Jack Treber here in California, uh, here on the West Coast, would be the successor to his fundamentalist empire. And that has caused a lot of uh, internal conflict among them because all of them want that title. But in any case, uh, there has been a turn back towards expository preaching. And what many of these churches have done and people have done is to defy the order of the Baptist popes, the head of fundamentalism, and they're beginning to search the scriptures once again. And when you search the scriptures, what you can expect to find are doctrinal conflicts with the wrong doctrinal positions. And so some of them have been rethinking things, and they're coming back more and more towards the doctrines of grace. And many of them have not yet reached that far, but at least they're thinking about it where they never would think about it before. And so they're starting to consider these doctrinal positions that we used to have. Now, most of them haven't come that far. I mean, quite frankly, they haven't come that far. And uh, many of them think that, well, all that they need do is just spend a few hours or a week or a month, and then they'll fully understand the doctrinal positions of us that hold the doctrines of grace. And that's why when you, when you listen to their sermons, you find that what they say about what we believe are just caricatures of what we believe. And they're actually woefully inadequate expositions. But in any case, the dialogue is open now. And some of these larger fundamental churches that have held sway over the smaller ones, they're starting to get very concerned about this issue. That there are people that are turning back to those old doctrinal positions. And you can see that consternation in their writings. Their papers and their magazines wage a war of propaganda, much of it entirely false and, quite honestly, disingenuous. For example, have you ever heard me preach that God predestines people to hell? And have you ever heard me preach that whosoever will cannot be saved? Have you ever heard me preach that God excludes some people from heaven? And have you ever heard me preach that we cannot give a free offer of the gospel of Jesus Christ to every person? Anybody raise your hand and say you've heard me preach that? But that's exactly the things that they say about us. Those are the charges that they lay against us. Well, you're wondering probably, what are you talking about? So here's where we want to get into this. What went wrong with revivalism? What was wrong with revivalism in the 19th century that has carried on in today's churches today? Well, first of all, let me say this. That revival is very sorely needed among God's people. I believe that revival is needed in our church. We do need to have revival. And it was needed in the 19th century as the Second Great Awakening was, was dying out because as that was, was dying out, people just did not have their hearts right with God. Now, as I've spoken before, what we really need to do is to rid ourselves of this romanticism that for most of the history of America, that the majority of the people in the United States have been blood-washed, born-again believers. That is simply not true. Now, when the pilgrims got off the Mayflower, it was true. I mean, there were 102 people that were on the Mayflower not all of them were saved. Most of them were saved. But it's really hard to maintain those kinds of percentages. And as generations come, 
and more children are being born, the percentages begin to drop. Now, people were certainly more religious in those days than they are now. They were more respectful of religion than they are now. But religion doesn't equate to salvation. I mean, all that you really need to do is to look into the New Testament and see the Jews, the Pharisees. They were very, very religious, but their religion did not equate to salvation. People are naturally religious, but people are not naturally Christians. Salvation is about personal faith in Jesus Christ as the Redeemer of fallen man. And it's a radical commitment to Jesus as Lord and Savior, and it's also the determination to live according to his example. And that has never really been the dominant position, except for a few years in the very beginning. And since that time, the masses in America are just like those in all other countries. God's way is a narrow way, and Jesus said most people are on the broad way to destruction. And so it wasn't long before the Christian influence in America was diluted, just like in all other countries, and it was dominated, and America's been dominated by unbelievers. And so we have to get rid of this romantic idea that we have that most people in America were, are, were or are born-again believers, true believers in God. And then further, we have to keep it in our mind that the wickedness of the world has always had an impact on the people of God. That there is an influence of Satan that we fight every single day of our lives. And this is why John wrote in 1 John, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. You don't really need warnings like that unless the people of God are prone to wander away like dumb sheep. And this is what we do. Christians are drawn away from the, by the world, and that's what was going on in the 19th century. People were being drawn away from the things of God, and this country needed revival. They were drifting away and needed to be brought back to the faith of the pilgrims. And that's where the truth should have been maintained. That's where the truth of what Baptist people were hearing and what Baptist people were preaching, the preachers were preaching during the First Great Awakening, that truth should have remained, it should have been maintained, but what happened in revivalism, things started to change. Preachers wanted the Big Bang. They wanted mass conversions, and sometimes those conversions came. In the First Great Awakening, and the Second Great Awakening, there were many, many conversions during that time. But for the most part, salvation has always been what it's always been. Most of the time, we're working with believers on, in ones, twos, and threes, or one-on-one -on -one basis. Now, back at the very beginning, when the Holy Spirit came on Pentecost, there were 3,000 people that got saved in one day. And then shortly after that, you read Acts and you find that on a couple of other occasions, there were thousands that were saved also, so they were saved en masse. But when you get into the later parts of the New Testament, that's no longer true, but you find people being saved, as I said, one-on-one, -on -one, witnessing one-on-one, -on -one, people not saved in great numbers. So you didn't see the mass conversions. 
Well, during the period of revivalism, the preachers were once again after those mass conversions. And so what they began to do was to dilute the gospel, to add emotionalism to it, to add man-made systems to it, and that was to get the most conversions that they could get. And that mindset is still left over in evangelism today. Jack Hiles once claimed that in his church he had a bigger day than Pentecost. Now that, uh, that's known as Hiles' cost, as a matter of fact. And, and I don't know how, how anyone could claim that they would have a day that's bigger than the day that the Holy Spirit came on the church and empowered it. But that that's, just gives you an idea of how haywire some of these people go in their manipulation and trying to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Only the Holy Spirit can convict people. We don't convict people. That's part of the fallout of revivalism. That's part of the change of the theology, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. So what is this? What is revivalism? Well, revivalism is activism. And activism is not really bad, because we all ought to be active in converting lost sinners. Uh, this is what activism is when you talk about the Christian church. Activism is not a social agenda. Activism among Christians is not, uh, it's not feeding the poor and campaigning for love and toleration. Activism in the church is evangelism. Evangelism is primary. We are to be active in seeking the salvation of other people. And when we do that, it does branch out into these other areas where we talk about feeding the poor and so forth. But that's not the activism in itself. The activism is the evangelism. Now, revivalism, on the other hand, is activism, you may say, on steroids. And it's not the conversion of souls by ones and twos and threes. It's the salvation of the masses by whatever means necessary in order to get the professions of faith. And the effects of that are still seen in churches today, and that's what happens when you have 30-minute invitations that are longer than the sermons themselves. That's what happens when you have begging and pleading and trying to get people to walk the aisles by trickery and manipulation. There are even people that think that a church service is a failure if you don't have a mass of people down at the front at the end of the preaching. And what the Bible says, God's Word says, that it never returns to him void. That God's Word accomplishes the purpose to which it was sent. And I wish I had time to go into this, how that Scripture is actually disbelieved by people that practice these things, because they think they have to do what the Holy Spirit himself does. Now, the Holy Spirit, as I said a moment ago, he does the convicting. He doesn't need me to do the convicting for him. He doesn't need me to do his work. But again, that's one of the doctrinal shifts of revivalism, taking away the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration. Now, if you want to talk about revivalism, which I do, which is going to be our subject for the next few weeks, you have to start with this man, and that is with Charles Finney. And we call, well, I'll call him the torch of revivalism. Now, let me explain to you that, that I'm not speaking of Charles Finney, who was burned at the stake, because he wasn't burned at the stake. And I'm not talking about Charles Finney, who was a, a burning light for Jesus Christ, because he wasn't. And I'm not talking about Charles Finney, who had a burning zeal for Christ, even though some say that he did. He did have zeal, no question about that. But his zeal was not according to knowledge. The torch that I'm talking about is another type of burning, and I'll explain that uh, in the next message, I believe it is. 
So Charles Finney was the poster boy, one of the poster boys of revivalism, and he's the one who set off these new tactics that had never been seen before in the Christian church. Never had these things been done before. Now, I have a picture here of Finney for you, and uh, he looks a little bit scary in my opinion, but that's a picture of him. Uh, He was born in 1792. That puts his birth near the beginning of the Second Great Awakening. In 1824, he was ordained as a Presbyterian minister, and that puts his ordination right about the middle to the later part of that period. Now, here's the very peculiar thing about Finney. You would think that being a Presbyterian, especially a Presbyterian of those days, that he would be right in line with the doctrines of grace. And you would think that because there weren't any Presbyterian ministers that were ordained without adhering to the Westminster Standard or the Westminster Confession of Faith. And that is an outstanding document. As far as sovereignty of God is concerned, as far as soteriology is concerned, the Westminster Confession is right on track with the old Baptist Confessions of Faith. But the peculiar and the sad story about Finney was that he was ordained claiming to believe the Westminster Confession... But this is what he actually said after his ordination. He said, unexpectedly to myself, they asked me if I received the confession of faith of the Presbyterian Church. I had not examined it, that is, the large work containing the catechisms and Presbyterian confession. This had made no part of my study. I replied that I received it for substance of doctrine so far as I understood it, But I spoke in a way that plainly implied, I think, that I did not pretend to know much about it. However, I answered honestly as I understood it at the time. Now, if you read that carefully, you can see that Finney obfuscated truth. He said he answered honestly when, in fact, he implied in his ordination that he studied the confession. Later, he said he didn't study the confession, yet he said that he answered honestly as he understood it at the time. And as one author said, that is very Clinton-esque. That is directly misleading. So here you, you have someone who, who started out in the gospel ministry with dishonesty, and I don't think that very much changed through, through his life. And the terrible thing about Finney is that he was wrong about salvation. Last week I gave you a quote from, from George Whitfield, and Whitfield, of course, had experienced many convert, thousands of conversions, actually, under his ministry. And Whitfield said that there is no man who can come to Christ under his own power any more than Lazarus could come out of the tomb. But Charles Finney did not believe that. One of his most famous sermons was entitled, Sinners Bound to Change Their Own Hearts. And that was actually his campaign. It was a campaign of manipulating people to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Finney believed that salvation was intellectual assent. That if you could convince people that something was intellectually true, then you could convert them and you could get them to change. And you can see that the fundamental error in that is the absence of the Holy Spirit in conversion. Now, what we believe same as the Westminster Standards teach, same as the Old Baptist Confessions of Faith teach, that the operation of the Holy Spirit on the heart is monergistic, that it's God's work to bring about repentance and faith. That is not the work of man. It's not the work of man to change his own heart. Now, that's just the tip of the doctrinal iceberg. Uh, 
But that's what's perpetuated in modern churches today. They have a different type of regeneration. And again, I'm putting a lot of this off until a later time. Next week, we're going to talk about regeneration specifically and what that is and what's gone wrong with regeneration. Well, to add to these errors is his heretical teaching against justification by faith. He denied that the sole ground of justification is the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the sinner. Now, you know that what we teach is that the imputation of Christ's righteousness and justification are synonymous terms. One means the same as the other. But Finney believed that a person has to reform his own heart in order to be acceptable with God. And so he denied that monergistic work of the Holy Spirit. And again, that is the attitude of most Baptists today. Whenever you think seriously about this, about doctrine, you have to understand, or if you do understand or think you're right about this, that repentance and faith come before regeneration, then what you've done, you've just made repentance and faith the acts of man to change his own heart. So Finney called the imputation of Christ's righteousness fiction. In one bold statement, he denied sole fide. Finney actually sided with Roman Catholicism on justification and sanctification, confusing those two, which leads to works-based salvation. And then another error that Finney had was on original sin. Now, original sin means that the sin of Adam is inherited by his posterity. That when Adam sinned, Adam was the federal head of the human race. That means that Adam is the representative of the entire human race. And so the whole human race was tried in Adam. And when Adam failed the trial, that caused Adam to have a sinful nature. And that is transmitted to all of us so that all of us are born in sin. Now, everybody understands that now? All of us are born in sin? Well, Finney denied that. In his systematic theology, which was really a tragedy, uh, Charles Hodge, who was the great Princeton theologian, said that his systematic theology was no theology at all. But this is what Charles Finney wrote in his systematic theology about original sin. He said, Moral depravity cannot consist in any attribute of nature or constitution, nor in any lapsed or fallen state of nature. Moral depravity, as I use the term, does not consist in nor imply a sinful nature in the sense that the human soul is sinful in itself. It is not constitutional sinfulness. So Finney believed that depravity was voluntary. Now, that actually is worse than Arminianism. That is Pelagianism. And you can ask me about that later if you don't understand what that is. But if you don't believe in original sin, then you believe in Pelagianism, which is a heresy that was, that was totally denounced a thousand years ago, more than a thousand, fifteen hundred years ago, as a matter of fact. So if you believe that, that's what Finney believed. Now, with a system like that, it's not hard to imagine that Finney was not ashamed to brag about his own conversion because he had changed his own heart. And so he wrote, sinners are under the necessity of first changing their hearts or their choice of an end before they can put forth any volitions to secure any other than a selfish end. Now, where have you heard that sentiment before? Where have you heard that expressed? Well, I've actually given it to you 
several times in repeating the words of a Baptist pastor who put it into his pamphlet who said, thank God I had the good sense to believe. That is exactly the same thing. And what that does, it shows you how much that revivalism and the theology of Finney has affected the pulpits of modern Baptists. And then going further, Finney denied the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He believed that it was unjust for sinners, for, a sinner's, for the sinner's uh, guilt to be placed upon Christ. And so he denied what the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where Paul wrote, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, I don't intend to get you into a theology lesson tonight, but let me just mention that what Finney believed about the atonement was the moral atonement theory. And that is that Christ was a good example. That he didn't actually bear our sins on the cross. He was a good example so that we would learn how to live morally. So we would be better moral people by looking at Christ's example. And so I'll just put it to you very simply. Finney was a heretic. Now, I know that most Baptists today, I don't know of any Baptist, at least none that I'm friends with, that, that deny substitutionary atonement. Baptists have not gone as far into error on these things as Finney did, but what's happened in the, in the idea of the atonement is that the substitution of Christ in the atonement is far less than what the Bible teaches in the minds of most Baptists. Now, what Scripture teaches is that the substitution of Christ is the actual payment for our sins, that it is the actual satisfaction to God, whereas modern Baptists believe that it's hypothetical, that it really amounts to nothing, that the substitution of Christ amounts to nothing unless there is input from the sinner. So it's not real satisfaction to God. It's not real payment for sin. It's a hypothetical thing that doesn't become active until there is faith. Now, that is just a twist of Finneyism. Now, despite that all I've told you, all I've told you here about Finney, and you're welcome to read his works. This is, this is public knowledge. This is not a secret. I mean, anybody can pick up a systematic theology. Anybody can pick up his sermons and read them. That's, that's not hard to do. But in spite of all of that, let me read to you part of a short biographical sketch that is on the Sword of the Lord website. Now, for those of you that don't know, the Sword of the Lord is a long-standing fundamental Baptist organization that publishes a paper of the same name. And on their website, on the last sen- in the last sentence of the biography of this man who lied during his ordination who did not believe in original sin, who did not believe in the substitutionary atonement, who preached that sinners must change their own heart, who did not believe in the imputation of Christ's righteousness in order for for us to be justified. In the last sentence of his biography, this is what their website says. Although some of his theology was lacking, he was a powerful, spirit-filled soul winner who brought revival to cities and towns across the eastern United States. Could a functioning heretic bring revival? Well, he could bring a revival of something, but you better be careful about what spirit-filled means. What spirit is that? What is the effect of Finney? Well, let's listen to what John said. Beloved, believe not every spirit... But try the spirits whether they are of God, 
because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Now, apparently, the sword of the Lord must have thought that it was useless to read and to analyze what Finney wrote before speaking of him as a great soul winner. Nobody is spirit-filled that teaches that people are not sinners by nature and teaches that sinners do not have their sins paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross, that Jesus did not actually bear the penalty of sin for them as the payment of that debt. Nobody who teaches that is a spirit-filled soul winner. This is not theology that is lacking. This is theology that's straight from hell. I mean, this is the very thing that John and Peter and Paul warn us against. And yet, this is an area of blind ignorance for Baptists. They ignore the theology of all this in order to get the results. Now, let me say this as far as the sword of the Lord is concerned. Some of you may read their paper. I don't know. Uh, I get their paper however often it comes, monthly or whatever it comes, uh, I get their paper and I glance at it every now and then. And, and I'm not going to say that all the people in the sword of the Lord are very bad people. That's not what I'm saying at all. That's, that's not my purpose. But the sad thing about this is that these are people who claim to speak for Baptists. And people read what they write and they believe them like this is the gospel truth. Like, like this, is the, this is the real thing here, that we're scholars or something. But I've just read to you how they... What they said about Finney, when he was off on just about every doctrine that you can think of regarding salvation. And if you wonder, why don't I have anything to do with the sword of the Lord? That's one of the reasons. And I'll get into this some more when we talk about repentance and faith and how uh, those groups of fundamental Baptists have actually changed the doctrine of repentance to be something different than what the Bible teaches. So outward results then are, according to them, the marks of a great soul winner. And so I, I, I think that they would say that William Carey, who labored in India for seven years before he even made a convert, that he wasn't, a really, he wasn't really a great soul winner. Now, they don't actually say that, but this is the outcome of all of that. And Carey's theology, William Carey in India, the great Baptist missionary, his theology was much different from Finney, the opposite from Finney, as a matter of fact, and actually opposite from most fundamental Baptists today. And so you have the gospel of Finney that's wholly deficient and let you, let you have people, you have people who think that there are those that are saved by this. Now, revivalism, folks, has very, very serious issues. Now, Baptist people don't follow all the things that Finney did. I'm not claiming that, they, that we do, but there is a lot that came out of revivalism that is bad for the church. It's bad for theology. And what went wrong? Well, that's the beginnings of it. This is the, this is the start of the downgrade of the modern methods of evangelism and all of these things that you see going on today. You can trace it back to Finney. That's part of the fallout of Finney. Now, next time I'm going to come back to this and I'm going to explain more to you and then we're going to get into scripture on this as we talk about what is regeneration. What does the Bible teach about regeneration? We'll look at that, and then we're also going to look at what the modern Baptist churches teach about regeneration. And I'll give you the terms for that, what it's called, and how that's changed from what Baptists in prior to the time of revivalism were preaching. Now, folks, the good thing is there are still many, many, many Baptists that are right on these issues, that are still teaching the truth on these issues. And there are reasons for our resistance to the effects of wrong theology and to the effects of unscriptural tactics in the church. 
and we think that we ought to stick to the truth. We ought to go back to what our Baptist forefathers were teaching when they came to this country and what Baptists have always stood for rather than going with the changes that have been made in revivalism in the last 100 to 150 years. So we'll look at that, we'll study some more about that, and we'll understand what it is that actually went wrong. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we've had to spend together tonight. And Lord, we, we do want to teach the truth of your word. And we can look back at history, and these things are not things that we can't figure out, that we can't find out. The history is there, the works are there, the writings are all there, and we can read all about it and read what these people believed and what they taught. And we can understand why it's against Scripture and why we think that these things need to be corrected in our churches today. So, Lord, we ask that you give us the truth and help us to understand the truth. And, Lord, that we might always stand on your word that was delivered by Jesus and the apostles to your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.